This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. back with another action-packed episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creative people who are all uh, dead and buried, so mm. we are at liberty to to speak about them, <laughs> I guess, however we please. Yeah, uh, right, right. Obviously, yeah, and I'm, I'm Kevin Kautzman, and I'm joined by the singular Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm great, man. I'm great. How are you doing? Yeah, Super. I'm doing yeah. okay. It's a beautiful fall, uh, fall day here in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. How are things in uh, Michigan? Same thing, man. We're having uh, what they call an Indian summer. And uh, uh-huh. I don't know if you know the origin of that term. No. No? Tell yeah. me. So, so back in the uh, settler days um, when fall had begun. So in the winter, there wasn't much conflict with the Native Americans, right? Aha. Uh-huh. But once fall started, you could kind of say, okay, well, maybe we got some reprieve from this. And then suddenly there would be a bright, sunny stretch of days and the natives would come back. And again, you would be, uh, you know, getting under <laughs> assault. <laughs> right. So yeah. it basically meant like, oh, no, the Indians are coming back to kill us. Ah, which yes, hey, the, I'm, I'm right. not picking a side here. Sure, yeah, but the, the, just, this isn't a political podcast, right? But, this is uh, just where the term apparently originates from. I am that is fascinating, and yeah. uh, and of course extremely dark, right? And uh, that's why that, I thought it was fitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We so have a bright sunny day. I had to throw a little shade on it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, wonderful. That's great. I just love thinking about how this entire continent was based on theft and genocide and murder, and right. it might be time right. to watch The Shining again. Yeah, there you go. Right. And before I do, maybe I'll go back and listen to the Kubrick episode of of Art of Darkness. That's a a Hall of Fame episode. I think that was that was a breakthrough episode for us. Uh, People seem to really react to that. Uh, And of course, people can find us on Twitter at Art of Dark Pod. We're coming up on a year here, Brad. I know. I know. I know. I tweeted out a list of everything everybody we've done so far. And it was uh, it impressed. It it was cool to just see them all listed like that. and, And then and people seem to really respond to just seeing that. I had a lot of like, wait, what is this show? Like, <laughs> which, was, which is what you want, right? Um, so, so that's cool. Yeah, it's it's whatever. Fourteen episodes plus some here's and theres, and and yeah, still going strong. So we're gonna have to do a uh, a retrospective uh, coming up on year one as yeah. we get into because I think it looks like I'm going back. I'm on the website artofdarkpod.com and I it looks like we started in February of 2021. So that's right. Yeah. Uh, we have some some exciting episodes coming up. Uh, who who is our subject today? Who are we going to vivisect on uh, today's episode? Um the great 
Zora Neale Hurston. Um, Zora Neale Hurston. I didn't know a ton about her going into this. I knew a bit. I'd read some of her and whatnot. And and by the end of it, I was like, this is one of the most based people who has ever lived. Red pill based (laughs) Zora Neale Hurston. Yes. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Kevin, what do you know about Zora Neale Hurston? That's our classic question here. I know next to nothing. I know what you have set up yeah. uh, in terms of the show and kind of pre-production, but we don't yeah. share very many details. You, yeah. You've been hyping up the fact that we're going to be talking a little bit, a bit about voodoo. Yes. Uh, yeah. Very cool. It's, it's October. Yeah. These episodes are evergreen episodes, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I am getting in. It is spooky season, so right. I am getting into. I went to a spirit uh, Halloween store yesterday. In a, that's in the a, American. That's the American occult tradition of Halloween. Is, right. is mm-hmm. suddenly a dead an abandoned storefront is infested by the spirit of Halloween. Right? And it was <laughs> really down market. We were in uh, suburban Minnesota here right. and it, it was in an abandoned Toys R Us. Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. One of the one of the window <laughs> panels had been blown out, glass oh. was shattered everywhere. Oh. Uh, you know, and then they have their their garish signs, you know, we're yeah. hiring, join right. our spooky team. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, you're gonna oh, make like nine dollars an hour for two weeks oh just doing God. grunt work stocking yeah. shelves just yeah. disgusting yeah. right no masks to be seen right they, they are they want yeah. covid to come to bring an end to everything <laughs> out at the maplewood spirit yeah so i know about the voodoo for zora neal okay. and i yeah. know about the harlem harlem renaissance yeah, yeah. big player there uh, i used to live near harlem so uh, yeah. i guess there you go that's yeah. about all i know okay so i'm gonna get an education along with our audience i'm excited okay great yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um so zora neal hurston um it's right off the bat it's all kind of interesting so she's born january 7th of 1891 or maybe 1901, maybe 1898, maybe as late as 1903 in Natasolga, Alabama, the fifth of eight children. Um, I want to go, I'm going to do this a little weird though. So I'm going to start right now, 2021. 2021, Zora Neale Hurston's great novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, is uh, assigned in one course or another at basically every university in the country, um, American literature courses, um, African-American literature courses. Um, it's pretty much a staple. Um, you know, it might not be at the level of, uh, it is almost at the level of anything else in terms of assigned. I read it twice, getting a bachelor's in English and an MFA, I ended up reading Their Eyes Were Watching God two different occasions. So it's, it's there. Um, 2005, Oprah, the great Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey produces a film adaptation of Their Eyes Were Watching God. Go back to 1975, Alice Walker uh, published an article in Ms. Magazine called In Search of Zora Neale Hurston, um, which basically brought Zora Neale Hurston back into public consciousness. And because of what Alice Walker did, you would get Zora Neale's, not only later on the film being produced and it being colleges and all that, she starts to become cited as a major influence for writers like uh, Jessamyn Ward and Alice Monroe and Toni Morrison and others. Um, um, in 19, so that article was written in 1975. 1973, Alice Walker had gone in search of Hurston's grave. The best that she could do was 
a little depression in the ground at a segregated cemetery called the Garden of Heavenly Rest. Um, it was assumed, it was the best guess, that this is where Zora Neale Hurston was buried. And Alice Walker um, buys a tombstone, has it engraved, Zora Neale Hurston, a genius of the South, 1901 to 1960, novelist, folklorist, anthropologist. Um, when she died, so we'll keep going backwards, um, Zora Neale Hurston died in 1960 of hypertensive disorder. Um, most of her writing was out of print, except for some of the short stuff, um, including what was the, her great novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, um, and her most recent steady income had been working as a maid. Oh, um, all right. Uh, okay. Yeah, so one, one of these, right? We have we have these uh, occur occasionally. Where, yeah, yeah. Mm, where it's yeah. yeah, they sort of dwindle into obscurity. Um, uh, at towards the end, she she and we'll get to the death phase, but I'm still kind of going backwards, and then we're going to come up to meet her from the. We're gonna we're gonna go back to the beginning and come up to meet this moment. I'm gonna start in the caboose. Yes. Right. Right. When her last piece was published in the Saturday Evening Post, which was a, was a reputable place to have stuff published, especially at this time, um, she was working at a maid, as a maid, and the, the wealthy woman in Ogala, Florida, who um, had hired her, was reading the Saturday Evening Post and came upon her, you know, black maid's story in the, in the post which I just think is this incredible moment, wow, right? right? You know, Zora's cleaning her toilets or whatever it is she's doing. And this woman's sitting on her, her you know, her couch and, and with her feet up, um, you know. Where, where in the world are we? Are we, where would this be? This is in Florida. In yeah, Florida. O Ogala, okay. Florida. Ogala, yeah. Florida. All right. Yep. So, in like uh, the 50s or the 60s? This would be 19. Um, this would actually be the mid 50s. I think okay. 56 or Wow, so. I'm trying yeah. to put myself into that place. Right. Oh my gosh. Right, okay. yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, so this woman's picking it's her a feet hot up. day. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and this woman's picking her feet up so Zora can, can, uh, can you know, sweep under her feet and, and saying, Zora, is this you? Like, <laughs> you know, what a man. What, yes. a, what a crazy thing, right? Mm. So um, um, now we go all the way back. We keep going back further, 30-ish years. Um, when Zora Neale's first um, short story is published in 1925. It's a piece called Spunk in a magazine called Opportunity, which was something put out by the National Urban League. We'll talk a little bit about the National Urban League. It rocketed her, rocketed her directly into the middle of the Harlem Renaissance, right? Hmm. Um, and uh, became she became an object of fascination by both the black literati and the white literati that sort of was, was following the black liter literati around at that time. Um, and brought her, she became the, yeah, yeah, became, was, yeah because things have changed so much. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we'll see this, that like 1925 doesn't feel all that different than 2025 yeah, in yeah. some ways. Mm, um, mm. She, uh, and she be, was thrust to the fore of this movement that was called by uh, Charles Johnson and W.E.B. Du Bois, um, the New Negro. And you know, not a trigger warning. I'm going to throw the word Negro in here occasionally because Zora used it, W.E.B. Du Bois used it, and it was the, a commonly used term at the time. So if that bothers you, I don't really care that much. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> At Brad Kelly on Twitter. <laughs> so anyway, no, I think movement, you're right. We shouldn't talk around it. That, that's how this is. We have to have some language to describe what it is. Yeah. 
That's sure. what it was. There were the, it yeah. was the new Negro movement. It was made up of Zora and Langston Hughes were sort of at the, the forefront of it. And um, uh, with a number of other people who had varying degrees of success and influence, but Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston were like the two biggest players. Um, I want to read, before we get too deep into this, I want to read just like the first page of their eyes were watching God. Cause I, I read this book again, the, this is a, I've read it three times now and it's, it's an impressive piece of work and reading it in tandem with her biography. I, I appreciated it even more. So this is just like the first, this is the opening salvo of their eyes were watching God. Um, <clears throat> I love the title. It's a great title, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with a tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now, women forget all those things that they don't want to remember and remember everything that they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. So the beginning of this was a woman, and she had come back from burying the dead. Not the dead of sick and ailing with friends at the pillow and the feet. She had come back from the sodden and the bloated, the sudden dead, their eyes flung wide open in judgment. The people all saw her come because it was sundown. The sun was gone, but he had left his footprints in the sky. It was the time for sitting on porches beside the road. It was the time to hear things and to talk. These sitters had been tongueless, earless, eyeless conveniences all day long. Mules and other brutes had occupied their skins, but now the sun and the boss man were gone, so the skins felt powerful and human. They became lords of sounds and lesser things. They passed nations through their mouth. They sat in judgment. So it's, it's just this powerful thing. And then, and then I'm not going to read it now, but, but when, and we'll talk a little bit more about this book, but the beautiful thing she does in this book is she will go from something like that right into deep rural southern turn of the century black vernacular storytelling and she will alternate between these two things and it's, ah. it's 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 highly effective in my opinion so that was part of the genius of that book so anyway let's talk about her childhood zora neale fifth children of eight in alabama um you know, there's disputes about her actual year of birth. She probably misrepresented it multiple times for multiple different reasons, wanting to appear older for the sake of, uh, you know, entering academia, wanting to appear younger, you know, at certain times, all of those kinds of things. Probably 1901 is her birth. Um, very shortly after her birth, she, her and her family moved to Eatonville, Florida. And Eatonville, Florida is just north of Orlando. It's still there. At the time, it was one of a handful of towns in the country that was not only entirely populated uh, by, by African Americans, but uh, managed and governed completely by African Americans. There, no, there were no white people involved in the town whatsoever, right? And this was a unique experience at the time. Um, uh, and it's interesting for some reason, it's interesting to me that it's 20 miles North of Disney world. There's something, <laughs> it's, you know, sure. Yeah. yeah I just, mm. uh, an interesting, we're getting, we're getting ready to do our Disney episodes. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's com that's coming. Disney on the brain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So her dad, Zora's dad was a big shot in this, this town of Eatonville. Um, uh, she, he would become a pastor. He was actually the mayor of Eatonville for a while. He was, he was a sort of big deal in the town. 
Um, and, and I want to stress, and, and it'll make sense why this is important later, how hermetically sealed um, the town of Eatonville was from America, right? Because it's governed by, by um, African-Americans, descendants of slaves, um, and they're not really interacting with the outside world that much, Zora didn't face the kinds of everyday racism that, so, uh, that you might if you were living in a town that was a little bit more mixed, right? So, sure. you know, she, she, so there, there were systemic issues and those kinds of things, and those influenced her indirectly. But, you know, there weren't, she didn't have to, she didn't have to encounter and deal with white people. So she didn't get, she didn't get that brunt brunt of in-your-face racism right. until she was an okay. adult. Interesting. And, it's, and, it, and it develops her, it, it develops her worldview because of that. So, Brad, may I ask, do you have an idea yeah. of the population? Of it, the was, size? it was like 1,000 to 2,000 people okay. at her time. Right. So, so small, but not tiny. Small, but tiny. not super tiny. Okay. Right. All right. Yeah. Um, so 1,000 people kid, is enough for, for, like, for the mayor to be, it's a bit of a big deal. You got, you know, 1,000, yeah. 1,500 souls. You're not all related. Yeah. Yeah. Right, you know? right. And yeah. people are coming right, from all right. over the country to be a part of this. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, an inter- mm-hmm. it's definitely an interesting place. Um, and it exposed her to the, um, there was the, the, the primary sort of entertainment and socializing was just hanging out on the, on the porch of like the town uh, general store and that kind of thing. And this is where she got in touch with the sort of oral tradition of storytelling and, and almost theater, though it's not formally produced, right? People are not just telling the story of their day, but they're coming up with sort of, you know, almost competitive storytelling, right? You say something crazy and then, okay, now Bob's got to say something <laughs> crazy to match it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that was their entertainment. Um, and she comes, you know, that she comes from that milieu. Um, She's super strong-headed as a kid, like belligerently strong-headed, um, tomboyish, all of that kind of thing. Um, but her mother dies when she's nine years old, mm. and her father, who is a noted philanderer, marries almost immediately this other woman. And this other woman and Zora do not get along whatsoever. Zora is too hard-headed. She's not uh. going to take she's not going to take any guff from anybody uh, at nine years old. That's right? always a recipe for a happy home. It is right. Right. Yeah. And it was so bad that John, her dad at one point tried to get the school to adopt Zora to get her out of the house. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. 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 yeah so, no good. Yeah. So not, not great. And Zora always would say that by the time she was 14, she was completely on her own which is more or less true she would stay with some family in florida and alabama but she was basically on her own from the age of 14 you used to grow up real fast back in yeah the day. right yeah. yeah 18 you were you were ready you were yeah. an adult right right cases yeah, yeah absolutely mm-hmm. yeah. but zora um she knew what was she knew what lay ahead for her in some ways and i want to read this bit from her autobiography um the autobiography is called dust tracks on the road um there's a little bit here I want to read in her voice. This is about some visions she had as a child. Like clear-cut stereopticon slides, I saw 12 scenes flash before me. Oh, and this, is, this happened when she was seven. She's describing it as an adult. I saw 12 scenes flash before me. Each one held until I had seen it well in every detail and then be replaced by another. There was no continuity as in an average dream, just disconnected scene after scene with blank spaces in between. I knew that they were all true, 
a preview of things to come, and my soul writhed in agony and shrunk away, but I knew that there was no shrinking. These last had to be. So when I left the porch, I left a great deal behind me. I was weighed down with a power I did not want. I had knowledge before its time. I knew my fate. I knew that I would be an orphan and homeless. I knew that while I was still helpless, that the comforting circle of my family would be broken and that I would have to wander cold and friendless until I had served my time. I would stand beside a dark pool of water and see a huge fish move slowly at a time when I would be somehow in the depth of despair. I would hurry to catch a train and with doubts and fears driving me and seek solace in a place and fail to find it when I arrived, then cross many tracks to board the train again. I knew that a house, a shotgun built house that needed a new coat of white paint held torture for me, but I must go. I saw deep love betrayed, but I must feel and know it. There was no turning back. And last of all, I would come to a big house. Two women waited there for me. I could not see their faces, but I knew one to be young and one to be old. One of them was arranging some queer-shaped flowers such as I had never seen. When I had come to these women, then I would be at the end of my pilgrimage, but not the end of my life. Then I would know peace and love and what goes with those things, and not before. Seven years old, she has this vision. Oh, doggy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, mm. so heavy. Um, so anyway, she... Uh, when she's like a teenager, she takes a late teens, she takes a job with the Gilbert, Gilbert and Sullivan Repertory Theater, which I feel like has come up in Art of Darkness like three times now. Um, yeah, yeah. Gilbert and yeah. Sullivan. That, that is a big, big deal. It was a big, big thing. Deal. Yeah, I don't yeah. know as much about it as a theater person um, as I should, but yeah, uh, yeah familiar yeah. with, the, with the, the names anyway. Sure. Yeah. So she was a wardrobe girl and she toured around with them. She did it for a year and a half. And then she decides in Baltimore that she's just done and she gets steps off the ride more or less. Um, and then she talked her way into Morgan Academy, which was basically a high school. Um, and at this time she owned just one dress, two pairs of underwear and a pair of tan Oxfords. And she's in a city that she's never seen before. Doesn't know anybody starts going to this Morgan Academy. Um, she did really well there and ended up going to Howard university in 1918 people may know Howard University. It's this, this great historically black college. It's still around. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. yeah. When we were uh, in DC uh, in the before times, we, we stayed right near there. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. 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 It's got a great reputation and a lot of big names have, have come out of there and been associated with it. Um, here she meets this guy, Herbert Sheen, who she would later marry. And she gets a, an associate's degree while working as a manicurist. So, you know, it's not full-time school. She's got to make money. She's been on her own since she's 14. And, you know, that never stops, really. It's got to be a culture shock, too, to come from uh, where she was in Florida. This, was it Eatonville? Eatonville. Uh, yeah. yeah, to being in Baltimore. Uh, right. That's a right. big change. Baltimore's a big city. It is. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely, definitely. Um, from 1918, 1924, she would only complete a year and a half of actual coursework, but this is because she was, had to work. She was doing people's nails, you know, she had to make, make a living. Um, and she also, she also something that would afflict her throughout her life. She had this intestinal disorder that would like come and go throughout her entire life. And so she was sick sometimes too. And that, that slowed mm. things down, but she was, she did really well there. And she loved the academia, like she, she loved what you could do in academia, right? Just that you could, you could study things, you could read a book and, you know, it, that hadn't necessarily been, been the culture that she had been raised in. Um, she gets associated um, with this campus literary, literary club called Stylus. 
And this is important because she starts to meet some of the important figures in her life that are kind of going to kind of going to kind of guide her, including uh, one Alan Locke. Um, Alan Locke is known in retrospect as they call him the Dean of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, he's a Rhodes Scholar, Harvard graduate, and he's sort of the part of the, the theoretical backdrop of the whole Harlem Renaissance. And he was uh, fairly well known at his time. In fact, Martin Luther King would cite him in a speech when he was trying to say that, like, you know, the Western tradition has its Plato and its Socrates, and we have our Alan Locke and our W.E.B. Du Bois, right? So this is a, he's, a, he's a heavy in this world, for sure. And, and, and he, uh, Zora and he would have kind of a, almost a lifelong uh, relationship with each other, just uh, platonically. Just she's he's an older man guiding her, and he saw he saw her potential. So, um, nineteen twenty five, um, Alan Locke actually encourages Zora to submit to this magazine contest um, with uh, two two things: this story Spunk that I, I mentioned, and another play called Color Struck. She wins, both of them get in there, and she is then invited to this dinner in New York City. Um, and she doesn't, she basically just comes to New York City and for this dinner and then stays for two and a half years. Um, she, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she, um, uh, she and she knew how to she started knowing how to make the most of it you know she was starting to get this attention and she was she was right on the edge of getting presented by the the sort of black literati of new york city as this is what we mean when we talk about the new negro this is the, the this brilliantly talented woman who's who's can can accomplish things in the traditional art forms this is what we mean right um so she goes, well, so you have the, the race element, you have the class element, you have, uh, and then her gender as well. So that's very extreme sure. when you think of, when you zoom it out is. and you think about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So, and, and she, and, and she never let any of that stuff, she never let any of those issues bother her too much. You know, she was just like, she was going to be Zora. She was going to fight her way through. She was going to, you know, she was going to get right. acknowledged, whatever it took. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, she clearly yeah, has she, a voice even then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, she goes to this dinner. She manages to talk the, one of the contest judges into hiring her as like a live-in secretary, right? This is how she gets her foothold and is able to stay in New York City. She um, has the, the gift of gab here clearly too, right? She's talking her yeah. way into this high school. She's talking her way into this secretarial position. Yeah. Sometimes you need that. Yeah, and this yeah. is one thing I'm learning about studying all these artists through the show is like that's what the story behind a lot of them mm -hmm. where they just were they they had they had some means by which they could talk people into things. And yeah, not there, in like there's a certain amount of charisma. Yeah, and not in like some arch manipulative way. It's just like, okay, this is what I want and this is how I'm gonna get it, and I'm gonna just ask for it in, in a way that means that I get it. <laughs> you know? And there's yeah, that's a that's a that's a good not, skill. To not have. in every not in every case, but in, right. in in yeah, a lot of the cases. That's an interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know what our thesis is with Art of Darkness. Uh yeah. it, certainly it's fun to to notice uh, trends among, among right. these great artists. What do they have yeah. in common? Right. Yeah, that right. is and something that we see a lot of. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so she, by being in New York, she rapidly becomes like the focal point and, cent and centerpiece of the Harlem Renaissance from like a social standpoint. So I'm going to give you a description of how she, and this is from Robert Hemingway's, uh, it's not Hemingway, Hemingway, 
uh, his book, Zora Neale Hurston, a literary biography, which, which I'm going to draw from a fair amount. Man, that's um, a, that's a rough shake for a literary guy. He, yeah, he, right. he didn't get the G in the Scrabble tiles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just like a poor Drat, man's head. Drats, Hemingway <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, I can't spell anything with this. But, well, right. uh, he yeah. shouldn't have used his clear tile. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah, okay. So this is Zora. This is Zora in the midst of the Harlem Renaissance. <clears throat> Zora Hurston was an extraordinarily witty woman, and she acquired an instant reputation in New York for her high spirits and side splitting tales of Eatonville life. She could walk into a room of strangers, whether on Park Avenue or at a Harlem rent party, and almost immediately gather people, charm, amuse, and impress them, until it did not seem at all unnatural to be offering her whatever she might want. She was a perfect mimic, and she displayed a wide range of storytelling techniques learned from the, mas the masters of Joe Clark's store por porch. That's back in Eatonville. Um, added to this was her tendency toward the unorthodox act. She once took a nickel from the cup of the blind beggar at the 135th Street subway stop, explaining that she would replay, repay later, but today she needed the fare more than he did. She could be tart, referring to racial uplifters as Negrotarians. But she sometimes spent hours of a busy, busy schedule reassuring a depressed fellow artist. Her apartment was always open to someone needing a place to stay. All of this endeared her to most, and even before she entered Barnard, she had met the important people in the black cultural circles, with the result that, quote-unquote, Zora stories circulated widely. So she went from trying to get into that world to being the person that everybody else in that world wanted to know very quickly. Um, and it's a force of personality. You know, she had talents too. She'd won this prize and, you know, people were looking at her, but it was, it was that charisma and, and she was fascinating to people. Um, we'll talk, and we're going to talk about one other reason why she was so fascinating to these people, but I, I want to get to a couple other things first. So one thing I want to dip into, because I think it's important for telling her story is the Harlem Renaissance itself as a phenomena. So what do you, I mean, Kevin, what do you know about this? Is, we'll, we'll ask the, the second part of that question. What do you know about the Harlem Renaissance? Well, I mean, I principally think about it as a, a literary movement, but it was mm -hmm. because of my own background. Uh, but it was more that, than that as well. I mean, it was musical. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was a, a renaissance of, uh, of the arts, of black mm -hmm. art, um, centered around Harlem in, yep. principally in the, the sort of interwar period. Right. Is that a yeah. fair summary of it? Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, and I thought always thought of it as mostly a literary thing and maybe a sort of a jazz thing too. But there was definitely um, there was the there's a theatrical component. There were sculptors and painters mm -hmm. and you yeah, know, visual art, every, all of it. Every yeah. of the major branches. Um, there were some some Harlem rep Renaissance representatives. Um, it's pretty interesting. Kind of, it's a pretty interesting time period. And and you're right. It's it's interwar. Um, Generally, it's thought of as being between 1924 and the stock market crash in 1929, though, you know, obviously its influence lived on beyond that. Um, and it, it kind of came it's, about. Go ahead. No, no, that's so funny. We, we were just talking about this. Uh, New York has this funny secular thing where because it's so tied up with the stock market and the stock market is so streaky, it'll be mm -hmm. high and times are really high and then it'll crash and everything mm -hmm. will be low. We just went through a period um, where, you know, we both moved out. My, my lady and I, you know, moved out to, to Manhattan, uh, to New York City right after the Hurricane Sandy. And then we 
we left right after COVID had hit. So there's something about Manhattan in these like six, seven year cycles where the, the cities where, I don't know, there's just something about New York City and the history of that. It's, it's highly affected by events. It just is. Yeah. And it's yeah. this focal point of, of energy. Right. Um, so I think that's interesting that you pointed out that it was like the, normally associated with what, that six, seven year period. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so funny too, because it, it happens so fast. And I, I don't think that the people involved in it look around and go, you know, we sure are having a Harlem Renaissance. Right. Right. No, these things are <laughs> all like, applied in yeah. It's all, yeah. it's really, it's just like we're having great parties and we're being right. we're very creative and yeah. Right. And then right. suddenly it's over yeah. and it's only when it's over, you notice, oh, wow, that was yeah that was yes. something right so some journalist a year or five years or whatever after it happened is like well during the harlem renaissance and yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. right exactly yeah, yeah. so it, and it comes about because of a sort of a confluence of factors right so you had um harlem became for reasons of, not because of the renaissance but probably to some degree after it started because of the renaissance it became a destination for migrants of all kinds and harlem is still um, is still made up of a number of different migrant communities, right? Right. I mean, I don't know what that well. You would know that better than me, but that's my take on it as being. Yeah, in for sure. I mean, you have you have Spanish Harlem, <laughs> an awful right. lot of Puerto Rican uh, Puerto Ricans. You have sort of the East Side. You've got the West Side. It's still yeah. very dominantly African American, and it, it, it still has that that feeling. It it definitely is its own world up right. there. Um, kind of ending in the 150s, 160s, then you get up into Washington Heights and that becomes more of a mixture of Puerto Ricans and then Dominicans. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, New York is, is just got a ton of flavor still. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. for sure. And mm-hmm. it was no different in, during, during this time, right? So, um, so you had that coming and so you had, um, uh, you know, you had a, a black lower class migrants, but there was also becoming somewhat of a black middle class people with educations and things like that. And then this was all sort of, this might be putting too fine of a point on it, but this was all sort of funded in a way by um, a, a also happening at the same time, a fascination and fetishization of black culture by wealthy new white New York liberals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause things, it, it, yeah, all this took money, sure. right? Of course like you can't, you know, you can't sit in an apartment and sculpt if you can't pay the rent. So all this, you know, and it's, it's neither here nor there, but it's part of, it's part of the story. Um, I'll give you, uh, um, and, and we also had the Roaring Twenties in general, of which the Har- Harlem Renaissance was sort of a, a, a subset of, you know, the two go hand in hand for sure. Um, so I'm going to read also from this Hemingway biography. Um, I'm going to read a little bit about the, the Harlem Renaissance here. 20, hmm. um, and I, I want to read it from here because it gives it, uh, it's a little bit f- helps us think about it in terms of how this, what this meant to Zora. Um, quote, thinking that a trip uptown meant a safari into an exotic jungle, whites were titillated and exhilarated by Harlem's spectacle. Harlem became an aphrodisiac, a place where whites could discover their primitive selves. Many of the white fellow travelers so often in attendance on the new Negro artists sought a vitality in the uptown night absent in their own lives. As one critic described it, quote, Caucasian dowagers flocked to Negro cabarets, drank gin supplied by Negroes with more business acumen than the race is generally credited with having, and patronizingly gave individual Negroes bids to their homes. 
nothing was too good for the black man as long as he expended his energies in song and dance. Right. So there's a little bit of a like, we'll throw some money at you if you dance for us. Yeah, as right, a quality of, I mean, and it, how much yeah. has really changed? I mean, there's, this right. isn't, we're maybe not as far away from this as we'd like to imagine. Uh, right, yeah. right. And, but if you're somebody like in Zora's position and you want to be a writer, you want to be a, 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 you want to put on theater or whatever you want to do, and you've got suddenly people with money want to give it to you. Oh, yeah. And they're just saying, do your thing. You're yeah. going to say, well, I kind of don't like this guy, but I'm also going to take his money. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, without a doubt. Do. There's no, yeah, yeah, of course, take the money. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. a great jazz bar in Harlem still called Showman's. If you're ever in Harlem, go to Showman's. Okay. And uh, okay. it's, it's just this wacky, I mean, it can only be in Harlem. It's the kind of place where you'll sit down and then suddenly the guy next to you will be, will be speaking French and it's clear he's in town from Paris right. for this because there's cool. nothing like it. They can, they can try to fake it over there, but right. it's just all the cups are mismatched. Uh, you, you know, you order food from next door, you bring it back over. It's just a vibe, man. Right. On, yeah. Right yeah, on. yeah. That sounds really cool. Showman's. So, yeah. So I got, uh, uh, maybe we can get a sponsorship from them on this episode. That'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> we, we might have to sponsor them. Actually. <laughs> yeah. We got it. We got to aim for get them some matching cups. Um, so, okay, so that was, the, that was Robert Hemingway kind of giving his picture of the Harlem Renaissance, this sort of idea I'm circulating around. But I want to give, give you an image of this in Zora's words, and it would also give us a little bit more of her, a feel for her writing. Um, in this, she's talking about, there's this um, essay, I believe the essay is called How It Feels to Be Colored Me, um, but she talks about the same thing about this sort of white fascination with what's going on, and this is a little description about going to a jazz club. <clears throat> this orchestra grows, grows rambunctious, rears on its hind legs and attacks the tonal veil with primitive fury, rending it, clawing it until it breaks through, through to the jungle beyond. I follow those heathen, follow them exultingly. I dance wildly inside myself. I yell within, I whoop, I shake my assegai above my head. I hurl it true to the mark, yow. I am in the jungle and living in the jungle way. My face is painted red and yellow and my body is painted blue. My pulse is throbbing like a war drum. I want to slaughter something, give pain, give death to what I do not know, but the peace ends. The men of the orchestra wipe their lips and rest their fingers. I creep back slowly to the veneer we call civilization with the last tone and find the white friend sitting motionless in his seat, smoking calmly. So there's this aspect of like, you guys are fascinated about this, but you don't actually get it. Mm. Right. And yeah. not to say that I get it necessarily, but like, this is what Zora is trying to, what Zora was trying to say about it. Um, okay. So it's an art movement primarily, but like a lot of these art movements, you got some um, highly educated nerds sitting in rooms, uh, writing treatises about it. <laughs> right. Um, and one of them, one of the sort of, there, there's really the best way to think about the theoretical and sort of social scientific backdrop of the Harlem Renaissance is to think about two guys and how they're disposed to each other. One is W.E.B. Du Bois and one is um, this guy, Elaine Locke. And Locke is the guy who had, had, had pushed Zora Neale into publishing her story and, and thereby got her to New York City and involved in all of this. Um, most people know the name W.E.B. Du Bois, I would assume. 
Um, he was a Harvard graduate. He was actually mixed race for whatever that's worth. He was one of the founders of the NAACP and the author of a book that is still wild, widely read called The Souls of Black Folk. Um, to give you an idea of just like where his head was at, I'm just going to read a quick quote from, from The Souls of Black Folks. Um, and this is from W.E.B. Du Bois. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strive, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. So this is, he was the guy who was articulating, um, or at least thought he was, and many other people agreed, the psychic reality of being you know, the descendant of enslaved people trying to, trying to just be in, in, in America, right? Yeah, and there probably was no place quite as extreme in terms of the mixture of people as New York City then. Oh, right. As yeah. among, as now, really. Yeah, uh, yeah. You'd people from all over the world, uh, yeah. and yet very segregated in its own, in its own way. This yeah. is the, the neighborhood where the Irish are. This is the neighborhood where the, the black folks are, et cetera. Right, right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, so he was, he was and, and that, is, that accentuates this two-ness in a way. There's a participation yeah. and a non-participation. Oh, my God, a, and, right. and, and so much money in Manhattan <laughs> and in New York, and then yeah. so much poverty. Right. It's, it's been right. pointed out that, like, the Upper East Side has the greatest concentration of billionaires, half oh, property sure. there. Yeah. right next to the projects you can right. walk to the projects and then over here is where the Koch brothers live and here's right. where epstein was right. <laughs> not so that those insane. yeah it's so yeah. nuts and then over yeah. here you've got somebody who lives in the yeah. project it's right. just wild it's such right. A, right the contrast is so intense yeah you know i've heard before and i don't want to sidetrack too much have you ever heard of this thing called the gini coefficient no, what is this? Yeah, so the Gini coefficient is, it's a metric, it's like a social science metric of perceived relative inequality, particularly uh, financially, uh, right? Uh, and so the idea is, and it, and it relates, the worse the Gini coefficient is, the worse crime is, generally. Mm. And it's not about, if you're in a town and you're poor and everybody else is poor, the Gini coefficient is very low and thereby you can predict that crime is not that bad. If it's stressed to the max like that, where it's billionaires and people who can barely eat right next door to each other, the Gini coefficient is very intense. And so you can literally predict what crime rates will be like based on this, apparently. Um, and it's, it's just, it's interesting. Um, yeah. What is this? This idea of relative deprivation. Yeah. Right? right. So if you're among people who don't have anything more than you, there's a yeah. possibility to kind of just find a cozy happiness in it. But if, yeah. if you have to stare at the person with the... Yeah. Right. It's just yeah. It's like I'm doing, a, I'm doing about as good as my neighbor. So yeah. fine. Yeah. Right. But, mm -hmm. but when your neighbor's a billionaire and like you work at, you know, whatever at the docks, it's like, what the, what is going on? Yeah. Or you things... work in their house or you, right. right you have right. to come by worse. to you deliver yeah. them their $20 juice. Well, and then the closer you are, it becomes understandable to reach this point of like, well, things aren't fair. 
this is all BS, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, no, yeah. that's that's a worthy little um, uh, detour. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's yeah, very it's much in play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so we had uh, still talking about the Harlem Renaissance sort of theor- theoretical backdrop. You have Dubois, who believed that the new Negro, Negro, sorry, the new Negro artists like Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, and the others believed that they should basically be writing almost propaganda. Um, for the purpose of uplifting the African-American community, right? And that makes sense. He wanted the art to be politicized. Alan Locke, or Alain Locke, um, who, so that was W.B. Du Bois and the NAACP kind of wing of things. Then you had Alain Locke and the, Ur- the National Urban League kind of things, which had similar aims, but Alain Locke was interested also in just a pure art. He was a little bit more on the side of like, well, what if we just make amazing art? Won't that also accomplish the goal of sort of uplifting the community? Right. So there's two subtly different, different perspectives on this. Now, the question is, how does Zora fit into all this? And I will tell you what her thoughts were on the quote unquote race problem. All right. So this is again from the Hemingway biography. Um, In 1928, Hurston wrote that the United States was my country, right or wrong. And she satirized Marcus Garvey in an an essay entitled, The Emperor Effaces Himself. Garvey's genius, Zora reported, was that he kept the money he collected, he, he kept the money he collected, an act distinguishing him from other race leaders. There had been some whisperings concerning W.E.B. Du Bois, she said, on account of his efforts to lower the violent mortality rate among his people and advance their interests generally but he never learned how to keep their money and so missed true greatness. It's a, she, <laughs> she didn't, she kind of didn't buy what either Dubois, certainly not didn't buy, but what Dubois was selling and kind of also didn't buy what Alan Locke was saying, but she was a little bit more on his side. She must've been an outsider, like a lifelong outsider too. She's not mm-hmm. from the Northeast. She's from Alabama. She's from Florida. Yeah. Uh, she probably has a thick accent. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Fascinating. Well, this, was the, this was the thing mm. she would say about Dubois and Alan Locke. She was this is part of the reason she, everybody wanted a piece of Zora in the Harlem Renaissance. She was the real deal. Like, right. Like, like now you talk like in, in like rap music, if you got a guy who is actually poor and sold drugs, that's authenticity that you can't buy. And Zora was like that. Zora was from the backwoods, some little town in the middle of Florida. Nobody would ever heard of. And Dubois went to Harvard. <laughs> right, Ellen Locke was a road yeah. scholar. Like, right, what do you right. know about it? So that, yeah, right. There's an element of well, okay, yeah. right, yeah. Are we the right. establishment, or of right. course we're not? But what? Right. Like, but, yeah, confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Mm-hmm. And even Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes was like from Kansas and was from like an upper middle class family. Right. Right. So, right. so and this isn't to dismiss hmm. anything many of these people are saying, but Zora comes in, and Zora is legit, top to bottom, authentic. What she would call the folk. And she was also, <laughs> which she yeah, was all, right. she was also brilliant, right? right. And so and she her graduate school was on a porch, right? Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, mm. so it, it it did it ostracized her even from within this community from the from the jump, basically. Um, so she, you know, she's in this creative period in Harlem. She puts together a journal with uh, Langston Hughes and some others called. Uh, fire with two capital two ex- exclamation points they were going to kind of spit in the face of both Dubois and and Alan Locke um, and it was a little bit of a revolutionary act to some degree but but 
the both the National Urban League and the NAACP, they kind of damned it with faint praise. They were just like, oh, yeah, it's good. It's fine. <laughs> right. And what, what, what Zora Neal and Langston Hughes wanted, they wanted it to cause problems. Right. They wanted it to be like, oh, no, we're the we're the l'enfant terrible, you know, but it didn't. They were just like, oh, that's fine. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> so it ended up not really happening and then they couldn't publish anymore, mostly because um, the same kind of things, the same reasons were if you started a zine in college, why it didn't work, you know, partying, laziness, no money, you know, a bunch trying to herd cats. And so it kind of went away. But, you know, she was she was she had contributed two pieces to it. Um, she was writing mostly um, short stories. Um, we're going to turn away from the Harlem Renaissance here in a second, but I want to read one thing about what we were talking about, about her being the real deal. Um, and this is again from the Hemingway biography. Um, let's see, where is it? Okay, Zora, Neal, uh, Zora Hurston knew from childhood the quality of folk life uh, and the aesthetic forms it generated. She contributed an authentic folk experience to the aesthetic mix of the Renaissance, a specific knowledge often underestimated when the Renaissance interest in the folk had been assessed. Hurston knew that black folklore did not arise from a psychologically destroyed people, that in fact it was proof of psychic health, right? And so this is something, this is a theme she's going to spend most of the rest of her life exploring. She had tried to be, she had been sort of, I don't even want to say exploited. She had, she had tried to present herself in the Harlem Renaissance and people sort of didn't get it because they were kind of overeducated and they were, they were interested in, um, and not that Zora was never interested in this, but they were interested in getting cachet in the cultural milieu defined by white people. And Zora didn't really care about that, right? She wanted to get down to the root of what it meant to be what she called the folk. Um, and she would figure out that she couldn't do this in the Harlem Renaissance, that what she would have to do, she decided, was go deep into the folklore and anthropology. Fascinating. You have this um, kind of urban, rural, north, mm -hmm. south, literary folklore tension here. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm reminded of our, our tarot uh, subject. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. There's some real similarities there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, so yeah, after two and a half years, she kind of burns out on the Harlem Renaissance and she goes to Barnard College and she's trying to figure out, you know, how she's going to do this project. This is now her project is to get down, figure out what the folk is what she called, which is essentially if we were going to define it is the culture that emerges among the descendants of former slaves. Right. That's what she's focusing on. She wants to Right. And Barnard is the women's college at Columbia. So right. she's more or less still in Harlem. Yeah, 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 she's still in New York City. Right, right. Um, uh, and she, you know, she gets attached to um, Franz Boaz. And for people who don't know Franz Boaz, the name might ring a bell. He is thought of now as the father of American anthropology. And he becomes like her advisor almost immediately. Um, which again is like, you know, she had to have something impressive going on for this guy to be like, wait, who, who's this? Right. <laughs> and, and start to actually give her some special attention. And he was a big deal. Okay. So he, um, there's students of his that were directly in his lineage included uh, Claude Levi Strauss, 
um, Alfred uh, Kreuber, who would then start the, the first anthropology program at UC Berkeley, um, William Jones, who was one of the first people to do ethnographic studies of Native Americans, Edward Sepir of the Sapper Wharf Hypothesis, Margaret Mead. These are the kinds of people that followed, were sort of direct descendants academically and intellectually of Franz Boas. Um, uh, Zora was like admired him deeply. She called him the greatest anthropologist alive, and she probably wasn't wrong. Um, and she threw herself into this work. There's a story of her standing on a Harlem street corner with calipers measuring people's skulls, which... They used to love that stuff. They did. Yeah, they used to take naked photos of all the incoming students at Yale, famously. Right. There are photos somewhere of right. Meryl Streep as, a, as an right. undergrad. Right. Uh, it is this scandal, but that's what they used to like. They yeah. used to love that stuff. Right. Uh, yeah. Phrenology or whatnot. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, and so she, you know, and she did it, and she apparently <laughs> didn't think there was anything problematic with it. Well, this time. was what they were doing. This was this was the cutting edge of science. We're right. going to measure measure your brain pan. Yeah, I, and I, I think yeah. it was like, if, well, if we just measure everything, then yeah, at some point something will come out of it. And I guess that's not totally wrong, <laughs> but it is weird when it's you're doing it to people. Like mm -hmm. you're doing mm -hmm. it to you know, you measure the tail length of every squirrel. Like it doesn't seem that weird, but when yeah. you're starting to measure people, it starts right. to get a little icky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she's, so she's doing the study, she's kind of learning the, the trade a little bit of folklore anthropology, but it's, it's not long before she starts to develop a bit of a, a double consciousness different than what Dubois double consciousness was, but between being the artist and being the folklorist, social scientist, anthropologist, it's, it's difficult for her to, she can't totally compartmentalize. Um, uh, and let's read something again from the Hemingway that, that kind of captures this and, and talks about, you know, sort of how this next phase of her anthropological research um, works. And, and, and also just kind of how interesting this all was. <clears throat> Zora Herson was a young writer from the provinces confronted in New York with a conception of art antithetical to her experience. Um, an object of art was assumed to be the personal product of the romantic egoist, forged in the smithy of her soul from bits and pieces of disjointed experience, then consecrated with a talent for the sophisticated reader. If good enough, it became immortalized in an unchanging form, such as the text of Hamlet. This conception of the artist was held by virtually all her contemporaries. Hughes was a possible exception and made no difference if one were an iconoclast like Thurman or a traditionalist like County Cullen. Given these alternatives, Hurston turned away from fiction and plunged into anthropology, a science which offered an intellectual perspective, a spyglass for her emotional experiences in Eatonville. She became Boess's student and a kind of proselytizer for anthropological, anthropological knowledge. The Boas training provided more than an explanation for Edenville's ex existence. It also revealed how folklore could be preserved without transformation into conscious art. Many Harlem Renaissance intellectuals felt that because folk art was unconscious, it was being trampled into oblivion by the march of history. The down-home stories, the slave songs, the old-time religions were assumed to be casualties of 20th century industrial life. As the environment changed, necessitating new modes of behavior, the old products of the folk imagination would be forgotten. Thus, the only way to preserve a portion of this dying heritage was to create a lasting, conscious art using the folk material as its base. So that's what Zora wanted to do. She wanted to find all of the bits and pieces of the folk consciousness. And then to make sure it lived on, she wanted to turn it into her own art. That's, and the problem with doing that 
is when you're trying to be a folklorist, you know, ethnographer who's measuring people's skulls, you're supposed to just be collecting data. She's looking for the bits and pieces that are going to make the best art. And those things are crosswise from each other. Right. So, right. And uh, remind me the name of the, the tarot uh, woman again. Pamela uh, Coleman Smith. Pamela Coleman Smith. Yes, I'm reminded of yeah. that. If you're interested yeah. in this line, uh, perhaps consider that episode yeah. Uh, yeah. Of, of Art of Darkness at artofdarkpod.com. Yeah. yeah, that is so fascinating. Uh, how do you, where do you draw that line between being an academic and purely studying something or trying to excavate it and make, make your imprint on the folklore? Uh, in a way that's maybe more formal. Right. right. Yeah. Wow. Right. And yeah, mm. so she struggled with that and she wasn't really able to do just the scientific stuff. She would get some stuff published and in actual reputable journals. But when it comes, came to, and we'll see a little bit, when it came to like publishing a book, she kept putting herself into it. She kept, she would borrow the parts of it that she liked the most. She couldn't, she wasn't going to sit there and put together a spreadsheet and say, oh, well, this character is mentioned in 19 folk and folk tales. Like she just, she was looking, she was looking for, she was trying to do, in my opinion, what Joseph Campbell did with Hero of a Thousand Faces. We took like world cultural history and tried to tell you what the story was out of it. Zora was trying to do this with the folk. Um, and, you know, had some success, really. This is not that wildly different from what was a, a broader trend at the time. We're right. talking about the 1920s and the 1930s. So when did, right. when did Frazier write The Golden Bough? It was, it was much, was, when was that written? I don't know what year. The Golden it's Bough, not, let me look. far from this. Uh, yeah. It may have been earlier. Yeah, 1890. So, but yeah. we're, we are further along, but this, this yeah. whole period of time, I mean, you think about Oscar Wilde, uh, yeah. wasn't that much earlier right. than this. It's sort of, there was this interested in, in the folk yeah. Uh, fam yeah. famously, yeah. uh, yeah. on the other side of the, the ocean, right? Yeah. There was yeah. this weird sort of, um, in, yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's, I, didn't it's expect, a, I didn't expect this, um, yeah. out of the episode. Yeah. yeah, and she wouldn't, and, she, and this is, I didn't totally expect any of this either when I got into it. I was like, wow, she is thinking really deeply about this and it's deliberate, you know? Um, so she does eventually, she, in 1927, I believe, she goes on her first collecting trip. Franz, under Franz Boas kind of sends her out. You're going to go to Florida and you're going to go in the South and you're going to start collecting some of these folk folk tales and you know bring it back and then i will help you package it up into something that we can write as a paper um uh the one criticism of it well we'll get to that um one thing just to touch on her personal life and make sure we're telling her personal story as well um during this trip she takes a diversion and she had been uh involved with this guy named herbert sheen who i believe um, went to dental school eventually. And during this trip, they had been having like a relationship of correspondence mostly. Um, she drives off to St. Augustine and gets married to him. Um, and like all of her relationships, it does not last. <laughs> I will give you a quick, um, won't be as prolonged as my last little bit that I read. Um, let me give you a quick little bit about this. Um, this is about her marriage to, to Herbert Sheen. From the first, however, the marriage was endangered, primarily because Zora had, been, had almost immediate second thoughts. 
As she admitted to Sheen later, the night before he arrived in Florida, a dream, quote, cast a dark shadow over the upcoming ceremony. In the dream, a dark barrier kept falling between us, and I sat up with the voice of your sister, calling my name in most unfriendly terms, commanding me to leave you alone, leave you alone, or suffer severe penalties. So um, it doesn't last. They're married. Technically, they're married for like three years, but almost... He, she immediately goes back to work and his assumption was that they were like going to be together. That's, right? that's a bit of a drag when your, your new wife says, I had a horrible dream the day before we were married right. and your right. sister warned me like, right. whoa. Yes, yeah, right? Talk about a red flag. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and, you know, there's a bunch of times where Zora refers to a dream as being somehow predictive or something. And I don't know if they, she actually had these dreams or what she's trying to express to somebody, she's using the mode of the dream to try and express to somebody what her feelings were anyway. It's not clear, you know, who knows? And you can't say, you can't tell whether somebody dreamed something or not, but it's hard to know which of those two things it is. Um, so her first folk uh, lore collecting trip, she kind of lets down Franz Boas. It's not great. He's not mad at her necessarily. She was freaked out that he was going to be upset. She really struggles to get any information. She, uh, it's tricky to go and talk to people and be like, tell me, you know, to try and just get people to, in a deliberate way, tell you all of these things. And she would eventually get good at it, but she was not good at it at first. One thing she did do as part of these early collecting things, she goes to meet this guy, Cujo Lewis, I believe his name is, he was one of the only, if not the only, um, uh, surviving former slave who had actually been born in Africa and brought to the United States, right? So there's, you know, one or two or three of these people left and, and she goes and tries to interview him, has terrible luck with it, but is so freaked out that Franz Boas is going to be upset with her failure that she plagiarizes the interview and reporting that was done by the last person that went to talk to this guy. Ooh, it's never yeah. good. Yeah, good. yeah, don't do that. No. Yeah. Mm. She doesn't get caught, though. Oh, hey, well. <laughs> yeah, so no harm, whatever, no, no harm, no foul. I guess, I guess. So, um, Wait, how, wait how, how do we know this if she didn't, if she didn't get caught? <laughs> oh, somebody else doing research on Zora like 20 years late or after her death um, came across this, came across this old <laughs> article that was written yeah. before Zora went on her trip and huh. then Zora's article. And I was like, this is the same, this is uh, the same thing. Zora's, Zora's in, the, in the afterlife kind of going, ha ha ha. <laughs> yeah, got, got away with got it. Got away got with, away with it. And, and she doesn't, then the thing is that Zora doesn't do is she doesn't refer to the other article at all. Right. So that's how you know that she's stealing it. Right. It's not like quotes, you know, it's you know, this paragraph she presents as her own writing. It's identical. Um, so that's not good. Um, now, because the collecting doesn't go that well, her relationship to Barnard does kind of wears out a little bit. She will be friendly with Franz Boas for years, but the academia doesn't, doesn't quite work out. Um, partially because I think she wanted to be, she wanted to be doing creative work. But in 1927, she meets this woman, uh, Mrs. Charlotte Osgood Mason, who is this older, old, rich, super rich, um, white patron of the African-American arts who would in her life or over the course of several years give to individual artists within the Harlem Renaissance 
money totaling in today's dollars about a million dollars. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. More of that, please. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Patreon.com <laughs> slash art of dark pod. That's us. I like yeah. what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. Hey. Yeah. And if it, it doesn't have to be a million. It could be yeah. 10,000. It could sure. be. <laughs> Give us five bitcoins. Right. That's right. Um, so this woman, she gave a lot of money. She gave money to Langston Hughes and, and, and Zora and several others. Um, I'm going to refer to her as godmother. We're talking about this part because that's what Zora Neale Hurston called her. And that's what Langston Hughes called her. They called her godmother. Um, And they kind of loved her in a way, even though they knew she was patronizing them in both the technical sense and patronizing them both in like being patronizing. Uh, She gave over the court between 1927 and 1932. um, She would give Zora in today's dollars, she would give Zora $250,000 in a kind of a monthly stipend Woo-hoo. over the course of five years. Wow. Right? They so, really, yeah. Wow. Okay. That took care of her, right? The anointed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, however, Zora and Godmother had a contract and it had some specific things that Zora was to do and to not do. And one was that Zora Neil Neil Hurston was not to publish anything unless godmother had seen it first and she wanted all this collection they knew at this time that zora was more of a writer than a folklorist and um godmother wanted it to be present the folklore collecting to be presented in a formal and uh acceptable way in a reputable journal right she didn't want like a some kooky novel (laughs) so so zora agreed to that begrudgingly because it's a lot of money and, uh, but, you know, didn't necessarily like being told what to do. But I'm going to tell you, she did love Godmother, Godmother despite their later difficulties. I want to read you quickly what Zora's opinion of Godmother was. Um, she writes in this story, uh, this letter to, to, to Godmother. Um, and maybe it's a little bit of puffing her up, but I don't think it's entirely puffing her up. So, um, uh, the relations with uh, Mrs. Mason were humanly inconsistent. As Hurston went further away, the psych- psychic bond, she believed she had a psychic bond with her, deteriorated, and her godmother became a meddling patron. When she was closer, the bond was an operative force in her life, and godmother was a soulmate, a woman who Hurston addressed as her spiritual progenitor. And this is what she said in a letter to godmother. Flowers to you, the true conceptual mother, not just a biological accident. To you of the immaculate conception where everything is conceived in beauty and every child is hovered, covered in truth. I have taken form from the breath of your mouth, from the vapor of your soul am I made to be. So that's like, relig- it's like weirdly religious almost about how, what she thought about Godmother. And, and so an important relationship for sure. But there were definitely issues, and, and uh, Zora would, bright, would bristle at the control, you know. Where did um, Godmother get her money? Oh, she came from a wealthy family, and then she married this uh, famous physician, Dr. Maya, Dr. Rufus, Dr. Rufus Mason, um, who died in like 1905 and left her in today's dollars, millions and millions and millions of dollars. Was this a, was this a black woman? Nope. No, no, she was, oh, okay. she, was a, she right. was a white woman who, okay. Yeah. Yeah. She was a white woman who was interested in, in sort of, 
but this is the thing. I mean, I assumed as much. I just was curious. I mean, this whole, yeah, strange. Yeah. Yeah. And she had the same kind of thing, like this sort of two handed relationship to the African-American community. On the one hand, she wanted to support it as much as possible. But on the other hand, there was a little bit of like dance for me kind of thing right there's a little bit of both and like there would be meetings she i think she told alan Locke one time to stop acting white so she had a very like oh that that's always fun that's a that's a good note yeah Yeah. right exactly so so her relationship to that world is oof yeah it's kind of it's conflicted Mm. right Mm -hmm. um okay so the relationship's getting strained. Zora keeps wanting to write creative stuff, but she's got to collect these folklore things and put it in a formal fashion for, for, for Godmother and all of this. Um, she, in 1928, she goes to New Orleans, and this is, this is where things get pretty cool. Um, in New Orleans, she would encounter voodoo, or as she called it, hoodoo. Um, and this is going to be like a lifelong influence on her, hoodoo. Um, she gets... So she gets actually initiated. Um, so, okay, we'll back up for a second. So there are some stereotypes about what voodoo is. And some of it is true and some of it isn't so much. You know, voodoo dolls, animal sacrifices, that sort of thing. That's kind of true. <laughs> okay, there are animal sacrifices in part of voodoo. Um, the voodoo dolls thing is probably in a specific subset of voodoo, of voodoo pra- practice. Um, but it's uh it's good because i'm thinking about new merch yeah we could get a, a aod voodoo doll <laughs> that actually be pretty cool, <laughs> <would> be pretty cool. <laughs> uh, in zora's studying of it she would come to see it as a real religion on par with like the catholic church right to her it was a real thing the one um, true faith Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's a running, running theme in Art of Darkness. Don't. I might say the. I might say yeah. the same thing now in Voodoo. Voodoo. Shows yeah. Right. Maybe I'm missing out. I'm, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. The um, parties are probably a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um. You know, but there are some cool things about it. Uh, there's no formal hierarchy beyond like one step established by like skill and reputation. Right. There's not. You don't go to like a seminary or anything. You go learn from some other Voodoo doctor. Um, um, in New Orleans, uh, there weren't really even any churches necessarily. There were some gathering places and stuff like that. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit of, um, something here about hoodoo slash voodoo slash voodoo slash obeya. Um, this is, uh, Hurston talking about, hold on, that might be the wrong quote. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is Hurston talking in general terms about voodoo. Nobody knows for sure how many thousands in America are warmed by the fire of hoodoo because the worship is bound in secrecy. It is not the accepted theology of the nation. And so believers conceal their faith, brothers from sister, husband from wife. Nobody can say where it begins or ends. Mouths don't empty themselves unless the ears are sympathetic and knowing. And that's the end of her part. She believed that hoodoo was, quote, burning with the flame in America with all the intensity of the suppressed religion. It adapts itself like Christianity to its locale, reclaiming some of the borrowed characteristics to itself. Right. So she when she went deep studying this and at a time in academia, her study of it was like the deepest that anybody had ever done. 
Um, and not only did she study it as an academic, she became initiated as a, a hoodoo, what they call a doctor. Um, she in New Orleans. Whoa, hoodoo at the, doctor. Yeah. That is that is pretty cool. I like that it's a it's a doctor of voodoo. I don't know why. I think that's very cool. I, I like that. I like that too. Yeah, it is really cool. So she gets and how this happens. She gets um caught up with uh. There's various lineages of hoodoo, and she gets into um this woman who is sort of like the godmother of New Orleans hoodoo at the time, uh, Marie Laveau, who's already dead, but her presence still kind of looms large in in New Orleans at this time. Um, she gets associated with uh. A descendant of Mario Laveau, his grand, her grandnephew, or something like that, and then is initiated as a doctor through him. Um, as part of this initiation, this was the big key part. There was multiple things, but a key part of it was Zora had to lie naked, face down on a couch, without food or water, with her a snakeskin touching her stomach the entire time for sixty nine hours straight. That was a part of the initiation. No food, no water, naked for 69 hours. Yeah. Okay. No food, no water. Yeah. Lying down where? Um, she was laying on a couch face down and she had a snakeskin touching her stump. Like she had to lay on a snakeskin basically. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it, she describes the experience and it's like, it's, it's psychedelic almost right you start to you depriving yourself of all sensory and then the hunger and the thirst yeah. and it the, starts to the only equivalent we would have now today would be listening to alex jones on rogan <laughs> right <laughs> right <laughs> that's a joke where that's that's the initiation into the art of darkness voodoo vo vo voodoo uh, cult is we, yeah. we make you listen to every minute of of aj <laughs> It's about seven. It's about three days worth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you have to lie there. You get nothing but like a, like a whiskey bottle, one <laughs> bottle of whiskey for four days. <laughs> right. You have to come yeah. out immediately out of that and go right back to your normie job. Right. Yes. With no buffer. <laughs> that's your, I'm making light of this a little bit, but that, no. that, that that's a very intense little. Oh ritual. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah for Oof. sure. So, so that's how she got initiated. And once she had been initiated, the Marie Laveau's grandnephew said that she was the last one. So she was maybe the, Zora was maybe the last doctor initiated into this ritual, into this practice. And there was a lot of aspects of what it meant to be initiated that she didn't talk about. Like she actually hewed to a certain degree to the, the secrecy of the practice. So, which is kind of interesting, right? So it's like her job is to write about this thing and she kind of went native, right? In a way, um, and, and, and ends up, you know, maybe not writing the book she would could have if she had decided to violate that. Um, uh, so, you know, that whole experience ends 1931-32. She's done with, um, done with uh, Godmother. She's published a number of papers um, in places like the Journal of American Folklore and whatnot, but, but the relationship is over and She's got to kind of figure out what to do next, right? The relationship's over, so the money's over, and $250,000 is a lot, but over five years, you know, it's basically, it's, you don't live, you're not going to live on it for the rest of your life. So um, she's got to do some other things. Also, Zora was not good with money either. Like, there's countless instances in here of just like, 
wait, she's broke already? Like, how did that, <laughs> didn't she just publish a thing? <laughs> so um, the next thing she decides to do is her and, uh, her and, oh, one thing I should mention, also in part of that New Orleans trip just before it, this is, there's a period where she lives in a lumber camp in Florida and that's where she really learns how to do folklore collection. To get into this lumber camp and be accepted, she told everybody that she was basically the gun mall for a bootlegger in, in uh, somewhere in Florida, Miami bootlegger who was on the run, right? And because she was like posed herself as a criminal, they were like, oh, okay, come on. We'll, we'll take care of you. We'll look out for oh, you. Oh, man. Right? Yeah. Fun. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's forgotten that the Wild West West in the United States is not exclusively in the West. Right. I mean, yeah. what is it? Cocaine Cowboys in the oh, 80s Florida. down in Florida. Yeah. yeah, Florida has this whole wild, oh, crazy. Wild yeah, yeah. It's still wild <laughs> yeah. down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so yeah. She was in touch with that stuff for sure. And Fun. She, yeah, but she mastered, she mastered collecting down there in her style. Like, she would get people to tell her things. She would... She would even, I'm sure you're familiar with Alan Lomax. No. Does that name ring a bell? Mm-hmm. Alan Lomax did, um, Alan Lomax, it was either him or his dad, one of the two, um, discovered lead, uh, lead Belly and a number of other uh, oh, wow. musicians. So okay, they would cool. been, they've been hired by the Library of Congress to go into far-flung places and like record american folk music and not when i say folk music i'm not talking about bob dylan that's nothing against bob dylan i'm talking about the place you go to a place where music is made by the folk what do they what do they gather around on a saturday night and what do they play right um zora taught alan lomax a few things about collecting which i thought was interesting because he becomes in terms of field recording and cultural American cultural history gathering, he's a huge force, right? Yeah, so, Zora Neale Hur- uh, Hurston, the collector. Yeah, it might be a, might be a show title. <laughs> might be a show yeah. title. Yeah, the collector. Yeah, cool. yeah, she, yeah, she definitely and she definitely was. Um, so she, this folk period, this this collecting period start ends. And remember, we were saying she was trying to figure out a way to turn what she saw as the beautiful cultural reality at the root of the folk and to make it survive by turning it into her own art right to pass it along and how she decides that she's going to do this she's now feels like she's collected enough she can do it she starts to write a play with uh langston hughes called mule bone they work on it at first by correspondence and then they're in new york city they work on it together um i was going to go into more detail on this but i'll skip a couple of things the key point here is there were creative differences made, changes made, primarily by Langston Hughes. Um, Langston Hughes invited, they had a typist, and he kind of invited the typist in to have more of a, of a, of a thing. It's possible his typist was a woman. It's possible that Zora had romantic feelings about Langston and felt jealous about this typist taking up more space. It's not altogether clear. There was some miscommunication, and so it's not clear who did what exactly, but one thing's for sure. Zora, at one point, submits the play for copyright under her name and her name alone. And after that, her and Langston Hughes are no longer friends. They no longer communicate. There's bitter enmity. Now, this is a problem because there's only like four famous black writers in America, right? And... And so if you are one and Langston's the other and he becomes more famous than you, 
that's a problem career wise, right? There's, there's just not a lot of room. There's, there's not enough room for Zora and Langston in this town in a way. Right. Um, so, uh, let's see, let's see. So we get kind of, um, she gets involved in the, she gets involved in the, the theatrical, um, in the theatrical world, she has a mule, um, sorry, mule bone. And then she has, um, another thing called the good day or a good day, which these are uh, another play that she would put on a number of times over her life and, and make a little bit of money at it. Um, and these are, she's taking folk material, folk stories and folk songs that she had learned and she's stringing them together into a coherent theatrical production. It's what she's trying to accomplish. And it was actually pretty well reviewed, um, at times. Um, in 1933, so she, now I'll note, she hasn't published a book yet of any kind, right? She's had short stories. She's had scientific or, you know, social scientific articles published, um, but no books. Um, she does get a short story that gets out there and attracts the attention of the famous publisher, Bertram Lippincott, who then encourages her to write a novel, um, and she does, and she writes it very quickly. I'm going to give you a little uh, anecdote about where she was at in her life in terms of money, in terms of writing, when the uh, Lippincott thing comes through. So let me see here. Um, in the book, it's called uh, Jonah's Gourd Vine. And it's, again, she's doing this kind of folklore thing. Um, and she'd been asked by the publisher to write it. She began writing on July 1st, and by September 4th, this is 1933, she could tell Lippincott that she was within a week of finishing. She completed the manuscript on September 6th, talked to a woman into typing it for a deferred fee, then discovered she could not afford to mail it. She borrowed $2 from the treasurer of the local Daughters of the Elks and sent the manuscript to Lippincott's in early October. By October 16th, she had a letter of acceptance and the author of a 200 the offer of a $200 advance. Um, on that same morning, her landlord evicted her, despite the fact that she was about to earn her first money in three months by booking some folk, folk singers for a city festival. She opened the publisher's telegram in the afternoon while purchasing shoes to replace her worn scrap of leathers. And when she saw the figure $200, she tore out of that place with one old shoe and one new and ran to the Western Union, uh, the Western Union office. She was, she was, out of money completely, right? When this when this book deal comes in, and two hundred bucks from now from then to now is I think like forty two hundred dollars, like four grand. So it's, you know okay. that'll that'll cover you. Um, I uh, so it's taken me back to time the time when I was in New York City and I got a you know a five thousand dollar check came through for something and it was it yeah. was that or. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what yeah. I'm going to do here. Right. Yep. It's going to get, yep. uh, it's going to get interesting. Yeah. 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 Not that yeah. much has changed. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, so the rest of her life after, uh, 1933, she's got a very complicated life because she's split in all these ways. She's split into the theater and she has some success there. She's split into writing novels and she has some success there. She's split into the folklore thing, has some success there. Um, all this time, it's kind of hard to scrap together money. I'm going to give you from the mid thirties to the end of her life. I'm going to give you a few of the jobs she had. She never had a job more than a year. Okay. Um, oh, one thing. 
this is uh, this is some promo thing man, before I lose track. We're talking about Haiti. We're talking about her experience becoming a hoodoo doctor. I have got the juiciest of tidbits about that for our Patreon exclusive. So if you actually want to know some deep Haitian yeah. voodoo lore, hold, okay. hold on to your horses. Right. And that is for people who subscribe uh, after dark episodes. You get them with Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. If you can support the show, that's great. If you don't feel like chucking a buck in for Patreon, give us a review on iTunes. Go yeah. give it five stars. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're not going to give us five stars, uh, pick a fight with us on Twitter and uh, <laughs> just just engage in any way. Yeah. We're just completely simping for your engagement. That's here. that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's Otherwise, right. the voodoo doll is coming out. I, I it, it, <laughs> that's right. All right. Um, okay, so a couple of her jobs. 1933 to the end of her life. Though we said she was a maid for a while. I'm not going to talk about that. So she was. And none of these did she hold for more than a year. She was the director of a school of dramatic arts at the Bethune College uh, in Daytona Beach. She was the dramatic coach for the work project, uh, the WPA, Work Project Administration's Federal Theater Project in New York. She was the director of the drama program at North Carolina College for Negroes in Durham. She was a story consultant at Paramount Studios in Hollywood. She was a librarian for the space program at Patrick Air Force Base in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and a few others. So it's just all over the map, right? Um, uh, so let's see. Where, where do I want to go? Okay, so 1936, she manages to get herself a Guggenheim Fellowship to um, uh, go to Jamaica and Haiti. So she'd been to New Orleans, with, and New Orleans on U.S. soil is the home of hoodoo, um, but Haiti's where it's really at when it comes to this kind of thing. And, and this is where... The hate in Haiti is where our juicy Patreon tidbit is going to come. Um, so this is a really fertile period in, in her life. 1936, she masters Haitian Creole, um, becomes maybe outside of people who've grown up in voodoo, becomes maybe the most knowledgeable person about voodoo in the, in the world, possibly. Um, and she writes what would become her most famous book, Their Eyes Were Watching God all in 1936, 1937. This is probably her peak creative thing, right? Um, and their eyes were watching God gets some significant acclaim, right? So people like it. And again, we read it now. I think it's a great book. Um, but let's talk briefly about what makes it good because and I don't want to focus on, she's got a bunch of work and, and I didn't know what to focus on, but I knew their eyes were watching God is worth focusing on. Spoiler alert also, if you haven't read it and want to read it, because I'm going to spoil it. So um, it's about a young woman who grows up in Eatonville. Uh, that's not true. Hold up. Back up. She grows up in a normal, normal town. Her, her, her grandmother's taking care of her, and her grandmother's a former slave. Now, Zora also, all four of her grandparents had been slaves, right? So this is, this is the lineage that she's in. This young woman is married off to a man by her grandmother because she wants their grandmother wants somebody to take care of Janie. Janie leaves that guy in the middle of the night for some handsome young man who takes her to Eatonville. And the guy who takes her to Eatonville is a doer. He's ambitious. He's smart. He knows how to make connections. He got some money somehow and he turns Eatonville into like an actual place. It used to just be some scratch marks in the road, basically. 
but he's very confining for, for Janie, right? So she, she's not allowed to play checkers. She's not allowed to tell stories. She's not allowed to move around. She's supposed to be held up on this pedestal, which she does not like. She doesn't want to be that way. This man, John, dies. And Janie then ha- now has money left over to her from her dead husband. And she falls into the wiles of this much younger man named Tea Cake. Tea Cake takes her to the Florida Everglades where they're bake- making a bunch of money growing. Um, oh, shoot. I can't remember what it is. There's a bunch of money to be made every year in the Everglades on this swampy soil. Right. And he's making money and they love each other. And a hurricane comes. This is the general plot of their eyes were watching. God. A hurricane comes. It wipes out this little ramshackle community they have in the Everglades. They go on this crazy trip just trying to get away from the hurricane, carrying whatever they can on their back, and things are flooding and blowing down. And, you know, blowing. and um, Tea Cake, who she loves dearly, gets bitten by a dog while trying to save Janie from drowning Right in this hurricane flight thing. After a few days, it becomes clear that Tea Cake has rabies. The doctor tells Janie, like, he's going to lose his mind, like, any day now, right? You're not safe. At some point, Tea Cake attacks her. She shoots. She has to shoot and kill him or be killed herself. And that's, that's basically the whole book. Now then, there's some, there's some coming back around to, to Eatonville. And those tea Cake is a heck of a nickname. That's, Isn't uh, it? that's an right? interesting one, Tea Cake. <laughs> yeah, I don't know dude. what it's about. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Now, this, this, is the, this is the dramatic structure of the story, but it's laced through with all of this folklore that Zora has uncovered over time, right? All of these little cool stories that people would tell to each other. She has baked it all in there, and she's done exactly what she said she wanted to do, which was to make this this stuff survive by folding it into an updated artistic um, production and she does it beautifully right like there's stuff in here that I wouldn't know about about folklore that only lives because on in me at least because I read her book so she accomplishes this and it's it's a bit of a masterpiece in its own way for sure um so anyway that's their eyes were watching God I would recommend it to anybody um, okay, so after that comes out, 1937, she starts to kind of slow down a little bit creatively. She writes a book called Moses Man on the Mountain, which is reasonably well received. Um, it's a kind of a cool premise in a way. It's about the life of Moses, but it's, it's folded into American black folklore. Again, it's, it's space. It's the same kinds of retellings that she would excuse me, would hear at the, on the porch and all that kind of thing. Um, to make money, she starts writing a bunch of uh, articles and essays that are published in places like Saturday Evening Post, which we mentioned, and the American Mercury. And this is where her politics starts to get even, even more highlighted. Now, she had fallen out of favor with Langston Hughes and fallen somewhat out of favor with the W.E.B. Dubois crowd, right? Now, part of this was because of her personality, um, a little bit of it is because she didn't really fit into the sort of stuffy academic thing. But um, she also had the criticisms of her writing by black and white critics alike was that she didn't talk about this the oppression that the black community faced. She didn't fo- she didn't she didn't focus on that thing. Now 
she didn't think there wasn't any oppression. Her conscious decision, as far as I can tell, and what's talked about in this biography and in her own words, her thing was like, okay, yes, there's oppression. However, what if we show the world and everybody, you know, if we show everybody how beautiful the stuff we can make is, our culture is, that will be the way in which we'll somehow get some kind of equity in this world, right? Not by complaining about it. And this is her, this is her perspective. Not by complaining about it, not by saying what it should happen, what shouldn't happen, but by fully presenting ourselves, right? Which is an act of faith in a way. It's like, we're going to be us and we're going to let the chips fall away where they may. This was her attitude, right? Um, and she lived like that too, right? She was just... She <laughs> um, and she had some, some personality things like this too. She, um, she hated anybody who pitied themselves. Not She didn't hate them. She hated when anybody pitied themselves, right? She had no space for that kind of that kind of attitude at all and so that was in her personal life and then it was in her politics as well she distrusted communism from the get-go never trusted communism and you know now that can be easy to say in the 50s the 40s in the artistic world there was a lot of care of there was a lot of flirtation with communism if not out and out uh, you know, political participation. It's the same exact way now, Brad. <laughs> hey, Don't, I'm that's not, to... <laughs> yeah, you're trying to sit, stay neutral. Okay. Well, are, yeah, are you yeah. telling me to have a career in the arts in the thirties and the forties? You had to flirt with leftism, Brad, my gosh, <laughs> we've come, we've come so far. <laughs> right. 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 Yes. I, I like that. She didn't, she did not trust the, the commies. Well, and this is the thing and think about how sophisticated that, that is. And, and, and I mean this, I mean this sincerely, like there were other people like, like Jean-Paul Jean Sartre and uh, Hemingway. Ellen Ginsberg and Hen yeah, it would take yeah. them decades. They were all taken in. It was right. only Solzhenitsyn and, and yeah. the Gulag Archipelago where they finally, finally yeah. the French intellectuals gave up on it, right. at least externally, but yeah. then it all went underground and became yeah. the garbage that, right. that, you know, now passes for yeah. intellectualism. Right. And Zora, Zora distrusted it from the jump. Right. Uh, she yeah. Knew, cool. She saw it coming down the pipe and was like, that's not, that doesn't work. She basically saw that is like, I think the big thing was she didn't trust anybody giving her anything. Like she knew that nothing was ever free. Right. And she'd fallen under the patronage of, of Godmother, partially because she loved Godmother, partially because the money was coming to do what she wanted to do anyway. But like, beyond that and she was actually doing work for it right it was it was a transactional thing but she i don't think she trusted it when people just gave you things i think she knew that that meant that meant you just had to give something back and if it wasn't money it was something you wanted to give up even less you know um the other thing too is she took she took attacks personally so like if somebody who was a leftist or something criticized her work she would basically turn around and look at all of all of the political apparatus that that person was associated with it as like her critic, right? So she, as time went on, she got further and further and further separated from that world. Um, so yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. It's a bold, it's a bold move too, and it left her kind of alone. She was able to write for white audiences to a certain degree. Um, but it did kind of leave her out on a limb, right? She's, she's sort of on the wrong side of everybody else who's trying to do similar things as her. Um, 
Uh, let's see. Yeah, so, okay, talking about this, I got another little thing to read. Um, this is, again, from the Hemingway biography, but this is actually her words. Um, oh, and this is about her book. Um, this is her uh, talking about her book, Moses Man on the Mountain, but I think it's a good, gives you a sense of what her general perspective is on all this. <clears throat> he, that is Moses, had meant to make a perfect people, free and just, noble and strong, that should be a light for all the world and for time and eternity. And he wasn't sure he had succeeded. He had found out that no man may make another free. Freedom was something internal. The outside signs were just signs and symbols of the man inside. All you could do was give the opportunity for freedom, and the man himself must make his own emancipation. So that's her perspective on that. It's like nobody can give you any of this stuff. They can't do it for you. It's got to be intern. It's got to come from you, right? Um, and I love that about her. I, I think it's a. I think it's a. Yeah, I, I <laughs> This is something that when I sort of come across this way that she looked at things, I, I was I was somewhat inspired. Um, a little bit of personal life, just because this is a great anecdote. At some point, uh, nineteen. 39, she gets married to a guy. Now, 1939, she's at least 38 years old, if not older. She marries this dude named Albert Price. Albert Price was only 23 years old. Um, she'd met him when she worked at the Work Projects Administration. Um, was definitely not her equal intellectually or maybe on any measure. <laughs> in 1940, they'd be divorced. So in one year. She couldn't do anything for more than a year. Uh, she would claim she would claim that he drank, refused to work, was abusive, and refused to maintain a home. Probably true. He would claim that she had dragged him to the altar, promised him substantial income, and to pay for his college education. Also maybe true. And there's another great thing that he said in the actual court documents about her. Um, this is, uh, yeah, this is actually in the court documents regarding their divorce. <clears throat> um, the defendant, that is Albert Price, was also put in fear of his life due to the professed practice on the part of the plaintiff, Sora Neil Hurston, uh, in what is termed as black magic or voodooism, claimed by the plaintiff um, to have been acquired by her while living in Haiti, and that she had the power both in spirits and in the uses of certain preparations to place individuals under certain spells, and that if the defendant would not perform her wishes, she possessed the power to, quote, fix him. So... Part of his, <laughs> part of Can his, you imagine uh, talking with a lawyer? Yeah, he's she's a, using she's a voodoo black doctor. Magic yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a night court episode. <laughs> it really is, right? Um, okay, so we're moving into the 1940s. Um, she has an autobiography come out that's actually a really good seller, and this actually propels her sort of uh, article writing career. Um, uh, and it's, it's, I've read, I read chunks of it. I, I will admit I did not read the whole thing in preparation for this, but I read a lot of it and it's, it's quite good. Um, she, in these, she's writing all of these essays, um, often advocating for a, a integrated society would be one thing she would write about. Um, she would often be reinterpreting, uh, reinterpreting black subjects for a white audience. That was something that was, that was, uh, beneficial to her, something she could make money for and what magazines wanted. Um, during the war, Zora had a real strong hope that the mood of national unity might take over so that, that maybe there would be some equality achieved by just, hey, we're all in this together fighting the, fighting, fighting the war, right? Um, and then when it didn't happen, she was disappointed. This took a little, made things take a little bit of a dark turn. Um, 
yeah, so so she kind of lives through the war writing these things. Now, something happens in 1948 that basically signals really the beginning of the end for her. Um, in 1948, she was arrested and charged for committing an immoral act with a 10-year-old boy. This was the son of a woman she had briefly rented a room from living in Rhinebeck, New York. Um, and the boy claimed that there had been a number of incidents. But the fact is, she had been in the Honduras for most of these dates. Um, I didn't talk about it, but there was a trip she was trying to put together with this captain she'd met where they were going to go to the Honduras and find uh, treasure in a forgotten city in the Honduras. <laughs> that was her plan. <laughs> it never happened. Um, but she gets out of, she, she's eventually acquitted because she literally wasn't there when this boy claimed that all these things happened. And it was clear that the boy was troubled. Ooh, wow. Awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> now here's where it affected her career. Now remember, she's been ostracized somewhat by the black inte- intelligentsia because she's not in the Langston Hughes team. And the things that she's, her approach isn't what that community wants at this time. Right. Um, and the communist types and the leftist types don't like what she's doing at all. Um, so what destroys her, almost destroys her career-wise, is the black tabloid press in New York City jumps on this, you know, molestation thing and totally smears her. Uh, yeah. Nothing changes, man. Right. <laughs> nothing changes. Right, it was like they were all yeah. waiting She's not a some... leftist, so right. she's not, oh, man. Yeah, so she does something, is mm. innocent of it, and it's one of those things, what I got out of it, it was one of those things like when it happened, when the charges happened, big story. When she gets let off, you know, a sentence. It's one of those things, right? Oof. Oof. So it was, difficult for, it was difficult for her to come back from that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, and she, I mean, she was depressed. She like contemplated suicide after this. Sure. Happened. I mean, that's just, it's pretty bleak. Yeah. It's pretty intense. Right. Um, yeah. So now that moves us into like the 1950s. She gets, lives in Ogal, Florida. She starts planning this uh, book um, called, uh, what was it called? Anyway, she starts planning this book about the life of King Herod. Right. And she wants to write a novelization of what she called the story of the 3,000 year struggle of Jewish people for democracy, which is an interesting choice of subject, right? I think. Um, and it was a big book, and she was doing all the requisite reading, you know, living in this sort of shack in Ogal, Ogal Florida. Um, and the, the book never came, never came to pass. Um, well, there, there's a pretty direct correspondence oh, yeah. between the black American experience and then the, to the Jewish experience of slavery. And yeah. there's a metaphorical. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah I mean, I think this was another part of why she, I think I remember early on, she decided that she wasn't interested in writing about the race problem or writing about it as a problem, right? She was, she was always going to take a different route. You know, and I think that's also part of why she couldn't ever fit in to what was anticipated, what she was, quote unquote, supposed to be doing. Right. You're supposed to be writing about the problem. And instead, she's like, well, this, this is so interesting, too, because there has been a long association between folklorism and right wing politics. Yeah. Uh, and it goes on to this day. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it has something to do with the idea of the spirit of a people being connected somehow to their their ethnic identity and their, mm-hmm. their identity by blood, which right. kind of naturally dovetails into sort of right wing 
uh, family oriented, tribe oriented mm-hmm. politics. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say yeah, further. I'm I not interrogating. Yeah, again, this much, is not but... a political podcast. No. Uh, <laughs> no, no. But I think it's very interesting and, and a little surprising, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this hmm. is the stuff that was surprising me. As Very was interesting character. It. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing she had said, and so there are a couple other contentious, it might as well, because we're kind of, we're, we're sort of ambling towards the end. There's a couple more, um, more theoretical than biographical points that I kind of want to hit. One thing was she, how she saw the history, the anthropological history within the study of anthropology was like Franz Boas was trying partially his goal was he wanted to prove that um that the races were there were there weren't inferior and superior races that's what one thing he was trying to prove and he just wanted to do this by gathering data his idea was like we gather enough data what we'll show is that everybody's basically on the same playing field right and that's great now the thing the with a problem hence, to come, hence the skull measuring Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, yeah. We're going to collect data and I'm sure it will prove my thesis. Right. And what, where this became a problem in the history of anthropological academia was, okay, there's, there's no, um, say cognitive differences between the races. That's great. Um, there's no, uh, uh, you know, intellectual or there's no work ethic differences. There's no, um, competence differences. This is all great. And then at some point, they just start saying like, well, there's no real cultural differences either. You know, there's no real, like, it starts to become a, there are no differences. And, and to, the, to Zora, that was, that was almost distasteful. Like, you're going to tell us we're all the same, literally? Yeah, well, like, there, there's that, that leftism uh, rearing its head, the academic yeah. leftism. Yeah, that's so right. interesting. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So that was, a, that, was, that was one thing. And she also, she was very... So one thing she said about um, she gets arrested for this immorality charge, right? And that's in New York. She was real big on trying to tell people that the North wasn't, the North was just as racist as the South, but it was ah, different. They're not going to like that at no, all. No, nobody liked that. Oh boy. Yeah. So her mm. point, and, and, and again, this is her. So her <laughs> point was, I, yeah, this is where it gets tricky. Like, yeah, I think sure, sure. it's important mm-hmm. to express what she was thinking and why she ended up where she did. But, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a strong opinion about this, but it's interesting. She said that in the South, nobody cared about black people as a group, but a lot of people really liked black individuals that they knew, right? In the North, they really cared about black people as a group but they didn't give a crap about any individual black person. That right. is, that is still a claim that is levied against, yeah. uh, I guess you call them liberals or progressives that progressives, um, love categories of people and mm-hmm. are very effusive about categories so right. they can be horrible to individuals. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. this is not an original idea. I didn't no, come up no. with that. That's that's something that's claimed. Yeah. So it's almost yeah. like a way to launder your guilt collectively. Oh, I right. donate to this organization. Right. But then when it comes to actually dealing with the guy who most, your yard right uh, you and, can just be as, as horrible as possible right and, right uh, you know and yeah. this is mm-hmm. this is something that zora identified as well right mm-hmm. and, and she made a point of saying like when she got arrested in this immorality charge and she you know she was like yeah this happened in the north right this is where everybody thinks that it's so much better for black people right i'm literally might go to prison oh. for for years because some random white kid accused me of something 
right? Wow. Like, yeah. So wild. Um, so uh, anyway, 1950s, um, she's, trying to, she's trying to write that book, but she starts getting ill. She's had this gastrointestinal thing that I kind of mentioned a couple times. It was made worse by the fact that she was afflicted by malaria. And for people who don't know about malaria, um, once you get malaria, it might be not as true now as it was then. You never really get rid of malaria. It comes and goes and kind of waves. Um, so you can be stricken by it years later and have a bout of, of it. Um, it sort of just lives latent in you. So she had that. It's like COVID. We're going to have long COVID forever. Yeah. Right. right get right. another booster. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so she had this on top of a, a sort of pre existing gastrointestinal issue. Um, 1950s. So she starts slowing down. It's kept, the illnesses are catching up with her. She gains a lot of weight, starts having high blood pressure. Um, she'd been living in this little shack that was very inexpensive and she'd managed to kind of maintain it for a while. But even then, at some point um, in 1959, she kind of couldn't take care of herself again. Now, the thing I glossed over is what we mentioned at the beginning. She was still publishing occasionally, but she had been doing maid work, right? She'd been doing housework for rich people in Florida. Um, when that sat- last Saturday evening post uh, comes out, she gets, you know, a few hundred bucks, maybe a few thousand dollars in today's dollars and is able to keep paying for that home. But, you know, she ends her life as a domestic worker, basically. Um, she goes into the, um, eventually though she hates it, she can't take care of herself. She goes into the, um, uh, into the County welfare home. Um, and then three months later, she dies of hypertensive heart disease. Um, and this, this really touched me for some reason, this last little note. They're, they misspelled her name on the death certificate. I don't know why that bothers me so much. <laughs> she, she was among the giants of this period and uh, right. race, and it even sounds like uh, kind of North-South politics yeah. and the broader political... Yeah, all kind of engender, all kind of conspired mm-hmm. to ruin her and yeah. to leave her nearly forgotten in right. Florida. Yeah. Right, that right. is and heartbreaking. They, and they bury, and then they bury her in this unmarked grave. And because she was on the wrong side of things politically and intellectually, they just forgot about her for until Alice Walker brought her back. It's very yeah. So, and that's yeah, that's that's roughly at least the story of, of Zora Neale Hurston, you know, the collector. American writer, the, the collector. collector. Yeah. 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 Well, Brad, that was, that was very moving. Uh, once, once again, I'm struck by uh, how uh, horrifically unfair mm-hmm. <laughs> life is. Yes. And uh, how the quality of one's contribution is not always, it is very rarely solely the thing that, that matters. Yeah. It's wonderful that Alice Walker uh, resurrected her career yeah. and, and rediscovered her. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And well, part of the thing about that too is like, okay, her politics weren't the right politics, right? And, and whatever. But like, what Zora was trying to do was a genuine artistic enterprise. And like to some degree, we should be trying to overlook the politics a little bit. I think when we're yeah, when we're, you know, I'll, I'll agree with that. I yeah. also think, though, quite funny for her 
she did. She must have had. She must have been a bit of a prickly pear. Oh, she was. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, we, we're talking about one year at a time. Yeah. And this sort of I've been everywhere, man. Transients. Right. right. But she, she's not like some blues guitarist who can go pick up a new band. Right. Uh, right. She's, yeah, she's got a florist. Yeah, yeah. 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 She's got to convince the Saturday Evening Post. And and there were some evidence that some of her later articles were a little bit pandery. You know, mm-hmm. you're running out of money, and you can do one thing. And somebody's like, if you write an article with this subject. Then we'll yeah, publish we'll it. Chuck you a little money. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So. She sounds like she was never really house trained. Right. Right. No, I think in the right. best of ways. Yeah. I, I identify as someone. It's like how and how much yeah. do you want to have? Uh, how much do you want to be involved with these institutions? Well, that's the thing. That's and there's a, so many anecdotes that could have told. Like then this is a good example. There was a time when she was teaching at the college in North Carolina. T- teachers were required to live on campus. She acted as though she didn't even hear that rule. She immediately <laughs> rented a cabin out yeah. in the hills. Right? What are you going to do? Yeah. Right. Yeah. What are you going to do? Gonna... Hey, I mean, you're thinking about, you know, Sarah Kane. Uh, yeah. I didn't go to too many classes. <laughs> right. I didn't feel it was a little too academic. Right. Well, you're in, a, you're in a college. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, like, yeah. you know, yeah, you might Stanley could... Kubrick being a D student in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, you got to admire so. these people who, who you know, you don't have to not, you don't have to give zero, you know, I admire the people who, when they know what they're up to is going against what they feel they need or want to do, that they just are willing to just pack it up to say, nope, okay, I'll just go be poor again. That's fine. I'm not doing this. Yeah, I admire yeah, that. Fascinating. So. Well, Brad, I really appreciate this. There are some things in there that I did not expect. Uh, yeah. I, I need to add... Uh, the title their eyes were watching god is that is yeah that, it's a yeah. good it's a quick read too it's yeah. 250 pages okay. and, and um it's it's a fun it's a fun little romp for sure so, i love yeah. this whole period from the end of the 19th century up until world world war ii where is there is this resurrection of um or this um this passion for folklore yeah. i think that is so fascinating and it it comes back periodically it never really fully goes away and it's always right. um right at the edge of fashion and politics and religion and uh we're going through a little bit of it right now uh, online in certain reactionary yeah, circles true. there's a there's a bit of a weird kind of um thing return going on. with a yeah view. return yeah. indeed yeah <laughs> what does it mean exactly to <laughs> right. return to where um yeah. Yeah, and, and again, I didn't expect this out of uh, a figure who is uh, so closely identified with the Harlem um, Renaissance. Right, right. So exactly. Yeah, uh, that was a lot of figure. fun. And the idea cool. of her being a voodoo doctor. <laughs> right. Like, and which in, which in the Patreon we're going to talk okay. about. And I got one word for you as a, as a tease. Zombie. Patreon episode. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. We'll go for another half an hour and we will talk about uh, Zora Neale Hurston and her ex- experiences as a voodoo priestess or a yeah. voodoo doctor. Yes. Um, that, that was really fun. And I do you like cool. the, the show title, Brad? The yeah, collector? I think that yeah. works. Yeah, that's cool. what she would like to be seen as. And so, yeah, I like that. All right, that. man, I'm going to let me hang on here. I'm just going to go grab my uh, my voodoo doll here. And I'm going <laughs> to, let's see It doesn't here. look like me, does I'm it? Gonna, this is everybody <laughs> who's not donating to the Patreon. And you're going to get a jab. You're going to get another jab. Get your credit cards out and support the show. Yes. All right. Yes, please. I'll talk to you soon. Yep. Yep. <laughs>